0: Welcome to Journey Through Scripture. We are on day 27, and uh, we're going to be looking at Job chapters 4 through 7, uh, Psalm 17, and Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 15. So our second day in Job here. Uh, Now one thing I do want to uh, mention, uh, I forgot to to talk about this a little bit yesterday, is uh, some of you may be wondering, well, why aren't we reading Exodus right now? Why does the reading plan put us to Job? And the answer to that is that it is very commonly believed that Job is an extremely early book, and that uh, uh, and there are various reasons why people think this. Uh, a simple reason, for example, would be that there it, it doesn't seem to be an awareness of the law of Moses in it. Um, now, I don't know how much can be inferred from that, but um, arguments such as that um, seem to have prevailed for for a lot of people, and a lot of people feel that that's that's a a good position to take. Um, But I—and so Job is second in this reading plan, um, which, of course, I I didn't put together the reading plan in case case you didn't know that— but um but by no means is that a consensus and by no means is that um even necessarily the most probable understanding of Job's date and its setting uh, keep in mind there's a difference between the date of the setting and the date when it would have been written okay like i can write a i could write a story that takes place in medieval europe that doesn't mean i live in medieval europe right um, so yeah, and now those who are not persuaded by that will sometimes point towards uh, some of the vocabulary uh, that seems to reflect a later stage in the Hebrew language Um uh, in particular, uh, what are called loan words. So these are words that come into it from other languages uh, that that come into Hebrew from other languages. Like you know how we we have have loan words. Like um, I might say oive, okay, which is a loan loan from Yiddish. I just import that without even trying to translate it. Right, you just import it in there, and uh, there are some features of the hebrew of job that seem to indicate that languages that date from a longer uh, sorry a later historical period have influenced the writing of the book um, none uh, none of that none of the arguments for the dating in my opinion are are that certain if you are more interested in that i would highly recommend the commentary on job by francis anderson that's anderson is spelled s e n and this is the Tyndale Old Testament commentary series. And one of the reasons why I feel comfortable recommending it, it is, is because this commentary series is eminently affordable and a lot of the volumes in it are really, really good. Uh, for another example would be, um, would be Richard Hess's volume on Joshua. And so for anybody looking to beef up their library, their reference library, um, but in a way that doesn't break the bank, um, commentary-wise, if you're looking for commentaries on individual books that will go in depth, um, you, you really want to look at the Tyndale commentary series. Okay, so that's that's just a little bit on, you know, where, why is Job placed after Genesis. Uh, now, diving into uh, the actual content here of chapter 4, uh, here we have the first of Job's friends speaking, and this is going to be Eliphaz the Temanite, and... Um, I want to note for you that a, a helpful way to to, to study job uh, in your own reading is to try to track the argument. try to distill the essence of what they are saying and how each person is you know kind of putting their own spin on it, maybe how they are responding to what's comes before. Um, that's a very important thing to be able to do in Job. Otherwise, it just seems like random poetry for like 34 chapters, 35 chapters. Um, and, and even after that, when God speaks, it's it's it might seem like random poetry to you. Um, but a way to really start having conceptual hooks to hang things on when you're reading Job is to do that. Uh, the other thing that's a little bit difficult about Job, and we, we've kind of started to see this with Job's speech yesterday, and we'll we'll continue to see it more and more, is that it's a bit of a confusing book to read because if you know the ending, you know that God steps in and basically rebukes Job and um, probably rebukes his his friends also. Um, And so you're reading along and you're like, well, these are good points. Uh, I kind of think this. Yes, yes, yes. But then you're like, wait, am I not supposed to think that? Is is this telling me this isn't right? Um, and the answer isn't as simple as an easy yes or no. I, I think each passage needs to be taken on its merits and needs to be integrated into broader theology. And we have to think about like what is going on. In the book of Job, and why are these things being said, and wh- and how what do they mean in in light of the overall, uh, say, argument or dialogue of the book? Um, but you got to be a little that that be, that said, you have to be a little bit careful. Um, just as with the Psalms, you have to be careful in a little bit of a different way in attempting to extract um, doctrine from Job. So just because someone in Job says something. Uh, it might be true, but it's not job is not the most um, reliable source of statements that are should be taken as absolute truth if I could if I could say that because there's the probability that or the, at least the possibility that what is being said needs to be corrected and will be corrected later in the book. And so I'm always suspicious when I see someone trying to make a, a theological point or something, then you ask what is the textual evidence? And it's somewhere in Job. Um, uh, not to say that Job cannot be used for doctrine. It's just we have to be very careful with that. We can't just proof text from Job. We can't just say, "Oh, look, these words occur in the Bible, and so they must be right." Um, no, it, interpretation is more nuanced than that. Uh, of course, I believe everything that the scripture says is, is everything that the tr- scripture asserts is true. Um, but. Um, but the question of exactly what is being asserted here in terms of the overall picture of the book is uh, is is not an open and shut case. Uh, finally, I just want to make a quick point that Job is also exceedingly difficult to understand, in my opinion, more so than almost any other part of Scripture. Um, and hard to understand in that it's difficult to know sometimes what the... Even the meanings of the sentences are uh, different. Books present different challenges. So Revelation, you might struggle with the imagery. What is this picturing or stuff? But you never like, well, how does this sentence even work? Whereas with Job, it kind of does. And and Job, there seems to be like breakneck twists in, in logic and things like that. And I spe- you get that especially in Job, in Job's own speeches which I think is a feature of the book itself. Like, I think that's something that is somewhat on purpose um, and somewhat very realistic. Um, if you've ever had something extremely anguishing happen to you, um, I'm kind of in the tail end of something that's like probably one of the worst things that's ever happened to me right now. And if you would talk to me right after that went down or even sh- shortly thereafter, I- I'm rambling. I'm not making a lot of sense and... Uh, if you're, <laughs> you you you're not. It's not the. You I wouldn't want someone to analyze the logic of everything I said when I was in that frame of mind, and um, I definitely wonder if perhaps part of what we find in Job is that that Job is is confused and he's struggling. He's he's in an intense pain. He suffered intense loss. I mean, his ten children have just been killed. Um, do I do I demand that he make sense? So those are a couple kind of big picture things to keep in mind as you read the book of Job. Uh, but looking at chapters four through seven, uh, so this is Eliphaz's answer, his first answer to Job. And um, in the beginning of chapter four, the idea is basically like, look, Job, you've counseled others in suffering. You get that in verses three through four. But now you're Somehow dismayed by your own. Now your the shoe is on the other foot. Now, okay, and you get that in verses one, verses five and six. Okay? You you've counseled others, and now you are suffering. And then he turns to some questions about can mortal man be right before God? Okay, like is isn't this kind of like there's there's going to be um, uh, an inevitable short. Everyone is going to inevitably fall short of God's standards. Um, and the how that kind of plays into the book of Job is that a lot of these, a lot of the view that is challenged in, uh, one of the big views that is challenged in the book of Job is this idea that if you do good things, good things will happen to you, and that that's how God orders his universe. Um, and a lot of their criticisms, and even Job's um, analysis of his own situation in the book uh, is dependent on this somewhat mechanical although n- and and naive view of how God responds to righteous works so some somebody somebody who's operating under that paradigm if I do good then God will do good to me at least now in this life and on the timetable that I expect it right the obverse kind of becomes true too like if if something is, really bad happening in your life, then what have you done wrong to God? What is what is God upset or angry at you for? But God is not upset or angry with Job. He doesn't do, and none of this has happened in response to Job's sin, Um, and it's just presumptuous to think that that's what we're talking about. And that, by the way, is why Job is often classified as wisdom literature, because it's 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 kind of this journey through what goes through the minds of people when they encounter suffering and when they try to help friends encountering suffering, and it's essentially teaching us that living in God's world is not so simple. There's going to be things that you don't understand. There's going to be horrible things that happen to you that you don't understand, but blessed be the name of the Lord, okay? Shall we accept good from his hand and not evil and not calamity? Um, so his recommendation, Eliphaz's recommendation in verses uh, now in in chapter five, uh verses eight through sixteen, is basically i I think you should seek seek God. you need to turn back to God in this um because you can expect justice from him. That's what I would do if I were you and 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 that's why. Uh, and he even gets into something that really sounds like what we um, see in Proverbs chapter three, verses eleven and twelve. This idea that God blessed is the one whom God reproves, right? That this is reproof, and 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 you're blessed because of it. Now, this, of course, we want to say this this sounds. This is Hebrews. This is Proverbs. This is good stuff. <laughs> um, so it, it's not like people only say wrong things in Job. Okay, there's a lot of right things that are said. Um, but you know, are they are they in response to the appropriate thing? Um, and so he he encourages him to not despise God's discipline. And if you do that again, you can expect things to go well in your life. Then that's where things kind of go off the rails. And I'm talking here about chapter five, verses seventeen through twenty-seven. Again, a very close link to that passage in Hebrews. Um. And then Job gives his his next answer and this is uh, going to be uh, chapter 7 um I'm sorry Job doesn't begin in, in chapter 7 Job's Job's answer is in chapter 6 begins in chapter 6 and goes through chapter 7 as basically um, kind of all over the place so I I'm I'm vexed because the arrows of the almighty are in me so like just like God is just crushing me he's so much more powerful than me and he's just I'm devastated because this is coming from his hand. And, oh, why won't he just kill me? Things are so bad. Like, he wants to apparently cause me to suffer. Why not just take me out? Um, he he wants, he, he, he challenges God, uh, chapter 6, verses 24 through 30, uh, make me understand, God, how I've gone astray. Teach me, verse 24 there, teach me, God, um, because I'm just miserable right now. Um, and Although I much I was a very important person at one time, uh, chapter seven verses seven through ten, I guess I'm just gonna fade into obscurity and my name will be forgotten and uh, he finishes off chapter seven with basically these questions, feeling that God is just picking on him and um, again, the thing that I find a little challenging about this is how how he's he shifts gears so, so often here, but again, this is very much how people think when they're in the midst of intense suffering. They're not thinking clearly; their thoughts are disjointed, and and the kind of just what they're thinking just comes out of their mouth with no filter. Okay, uh, Psalm seventeen, another Psalm of David. Um, this is an appeal to God for God to hear David's just cause. He uh, on the basis that David has acted righteously. Uh, notice the contact there with Job. Okay, I've acted righteously, so hear my just cause. And there's nothing wrong with praying that, right? There's nothing wrong with say, and indeed, righteousness is connected with God hearing prayers. James, right? The prayer of the righteous person accomplishes much, um, but it's not. It's it's. We should never construe it as so mechanical that God has to respond. If we've done good things, that he has to do what we want him to do and act in the ways that we think he should act, uh, because he somehow owes us or or we're on his page, and and God just is is waiting for us to do the right thing, and then and then he'll 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 give us what we want. Okay? but um, David is appealing on his own righteousness. He again verses six and seven are another appeal to to him to God to to hear his word. Um, I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior, of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Um, A wise man once told me, um, a a, a pastoral mentor to me, told me that one way to apply the Psalms, one key way, is to pray them, Um, and this indeed is, is... we have the right as God's people to, to pray in this way. I will call upon you for you will answer me, incline your ear, hear my words. Um, integrating this kind of vocabulary into our prayer as a way of teaching ourselves, as a way of, um, of realizing how David related to God in his prayers, and I want to pattern mine off of that, is, is, is an exercise that I think is very beneficial for many of us. Um, there's this is a prayer for protection from enemies um and i love the end of psalm seventeen where in verses thirteen through fourteen the the wicked are satisfied with what what do the wicked what what do they love um they 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 their portion is in this life and so you fill their womb with treasure they're satisfied with children that's what you know they're like i've i that's 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 what i'm That's my goal, that's my end in life, Uh, and so that they can leave their abundance to their infants, right? This is a person, these are people who are doing well in the eyes of this world, especially in the ancient world, right, where that's kind of like the name in town. But David realizes that for the godly, there's an even higher calling than that, and he says, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. So the 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 people of this world, those who don't walk with God, they are satisfied with children, with um with 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 wealth, um, with leaving their abundance to their children. What is David satisfied with? The likeness of God, knowing God. There is indeed a higher calling than building a family, and that is knowing Jesus and and the Father who sent Him through the Spirit. Okay, let's go to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. Um, And we're in the first 15 verses of this chapter. Okay, so here um, Jesus is beginning his trek down to the south. And I think I mentioned this on a previous day, but one thing to keep in mind here is that Judaism throughout Palestine was not just one thing it wasn't homogeneous there were different flavors of Judaism depending on where you were and so Jesus is up in Galilee that's about that's about as far north as you can go in Jewish territory in in the in um, you know this this region that is dominated by Jewish people that is has, has historically been there this is about as far as you can get from Jerusalem from the city. And Jesus is in these villages. He's in these podunk little towns, many of which we wouldn't even really know of if not for the gospel. A lot of them have been found archaeologically, but they would be of no consequence really, if they didn't play into Jesus's story. And um, and and so you can imagine what the urban religious establishment, thought of the quality of religion that came out of the area where Jesus is from. And when people would, when the Jews would make pilgrimages to Jerusalem, it'd be very obvious who was in the in-crowd and who was not, who was um, in line with the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees, and who were kind of like the ignorant country bumpkins and you they even had different accents recall that when peter has deny is denying jesus and in his trial um he's almost he's 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 made by his accent right that the young girl real recognizes says hey aren't you one of his him his and he's like no i'm not and they're like yeah, you're a galilean i can hear it in the way you talk so you even got to think, like, Jesus and his companions had this drawl to them, uh, you know, this this non-urban, you could tell where these guys were from, and the closer he moves to Jerusalem, the more impending danger there is for him, okay, because he started to make these predictions, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles, I'm the Son of Man is going to be crucified, and on the third day is going to be raised, and if you're reading this for the first time and you just don't know the Jesus story, then it's just this this impending doom, like what's going to happen to Jesus? what's what's going to happen in Jerusalem? And so he's on his way there and he encounters um, Pharisees. I've spoken about who the Pharisees were, this this lay movement very concerned with purity. And they come to him wanting to him to chime in on a classic debate within Judaism. On, um, on the issue of divorce, and they come to him and say, "Is it lawful to divorce one's wife at any for any cause?" And now, at that, we could probably you can just continue in Matthew without really thinking anything big Old Testament and and get a good grasp of what Jesus is saying here. Um, But uh, if you want to go a little bit into the background here. they are referring to something that is said in deuter at the beginning of deuteronomy chapter 24 which is a law about divorce that involves a man sending um his divorced wife with a certificate for divorce right she needs to be able to prove that she's no longer married if she ever wants the prospect of being able to be accepted into another man's home um she and and the law is essentially that like if you divorce a woman and she goes and marries another man and then she's divorced from him, you can't take her back. And um, there's a lot behind that. I'll probably explain it in some detail when we get there in Deuteronomy. But there was a big debate there at the in the beginning of this law at what is first said where it says if a, if a man divorces his wife for any cause, and that, that phrase, for any cause in Hebrew, is ervat davar, and it's ambiguous what that means. And so when trying to figure out what are the legitimate grounds for divorce in God's eyes, one school within Judaism said, well, for any cause is any cause. So anything that he doesn't like, some indecency he's found in her, it's, it's, and, and the example even is given that she burns a piece of toast." Um, so yeah, pretty much for whatever cause. Whereas another school said that no, this is any legitimate serious cause, and so adultery or, or something really egregious has to be egregious has to be in view here. And they kind of went back and forth. And so when he says, "Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause?" Um, that they're asking him to like, do you agree with those who say that? people could get divorced for anything. You're you're a rabbi, you're supposedly learned. And what does Jesus do? He kind of sideswipes their question, and he appeals to creation. Haven't you read that in the beginning God created them male and female? And he said, therefore man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is Genesis 2. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus essentially says, look, even in asking this question and trying to like figure out when's it okay to divorce, when's it, there's something already kind of perverse about that because you're not honoring what God designed relationships to be. Like this is a one flesh union and just being willing, and especially for those who think divorce is legitimate for any cause, uh, for anything whatsoever, um, there's a big wake-up call because God actually really values marriage and and has woven it into the fabric of who we are as human beings. And um, when people are married, they become one flesh and it, this is an act of God. And you're just going to try to find some legal loopholes to to allow people to 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 destroy that. I don't think so. Um, so it's interesting how Jesus really gets to the heart of the issue here. But then, And they come back, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Now, here is a big interpretive misstep that they are making, and Jesus kind of calls them out for it. Um, so, the, the wording of the law in Deuteronomy 26, okay, is when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency, there's the ervat devar. In her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs and goes and becomes another man's and 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 then verse four, then her former husband, dot dot dot. So this is an if then law, right? And the certificate of divorce, right? If a man finds divorces his wife and writes her a significant certificate of divorce, that's in the if part of it that's not a command. That's just simply saying in this circumstance, it's like if a man beats his slave, right? It's not saying God's commanding you to beat your slave. No, he's saying, and and notice how Jesus handles it. He says, it's because of your hardness of heart that Moses allowed this in the first place. So like he's, this is a command governing people who have hard hearts and are acting like jerks, and is just saying, like, it's not commenting the fact that something's in the if part of this law doesn't mean that this is a commandment. Um, and now certainly I think Jesus would not disagree with the idea of writing a certificate of divorce in, in the view of the divorcing, but the thing, in view of like, let's say, a legitimate divorce in God's eyes, um, but it's, um, Treating it as if it's a commandment that 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 uh, that's that's a problem uh, because of how they're using it, uh, how how they're using that in their their arguments in favor of divorce. Okay, um, and so he says, but because your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wife, um, but from the beginning it was not so. Again, back to Genesis. From the beginning marriage is not uh, something that should be easily disregarded or discounted and i say to you whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery so the idea here is i think the key is here he commits adultery right which indicates that the first marriage if it's not if it's if the divorce happens for a reason that is illegitimate in god's eyes they're still married if there's no legitimate grounds for divorce, they're still, still married. That's why taking another wife after after a an unbiblical divorce is considered by Jesus to be adultery. Another thing I want to uh, stress, and we will see this particularly when we get to 1 Corinthians, um, so we'll talk about it a lot more there, is that there seem to be other examples in Scripture of things that legitimate divorce, that can legitimate divorce. So, um, it doesn't seem to be that the scriptures are are so strict that only adultery is uh permissible uh or or you know is 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 grounds for for a divorce in god's eyes uh but we will get there uh real quick uh, the 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 idea that most the 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 thought that most pastors including myself have is that um it's really the three a's it's adultery abandonment by an unbeliever or abuse and um these days, a lot of people are trying to slip um, a lot of things into that category of abuse. So you have to be a little careful that um, uh, that just because you you think you can call something by a name does not mean that that God thinks of it the same way. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. As I said, that's that's more of a talk for First Corinthians seven. Um, now the disciples are taken back by this, and they say, "Well, if if this is if that's the case, if 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 we can't divorce, if people, you know, if divorce is is that narrow, like who isn't it better than not to marry? And Jesus actually says, for some people, yes. Not everyone can accept this, uh, but for those to whom it's been given, and, and this language we've seen in Matthew. Thank you for for taking these these things and giving them to little children, Father, because um, to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Okay, So so, uh, the Father grants, almost as a grace, the ability to be what Jesus calls here a eunuch for the kingdom of heaven. And that, of course, is somebody, a eunuch, of course, is someone who's castrated. I don't think he's talking about literal castration, but rather someone who is foregoing their own sexual and romantic aspirations in order to devote themselves fully to serve the Lord. And as Jesus says here, it's not for everyone, but um, there's something admirable about that. And then finally, little children are brought to him that he might lay hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuke the people, but Jesus says, let them come to me and do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. So again, Jesus's care and interest in little children and allowing them to come. And (laughs) I mean, my imagination kind of goes, but like, I know what kids, little kids do when, when they, they're excited about seeing me, like my, my little four-year-old Lacey Joy, uh, it's time to climb all over daddy. He's basically a jungle gym. And you know, we have the images of Jesus sitting on a rock and like there's one kid on his knee and he's calmly, but I mean, (laughs) just as, just as uh, likely i think is the idea that this scene was a lot more wild and scandalous to the people who thought that this is beneath a rabbi to to care and love for children um the care for children is a primary part of what it means to be a follower of jesus is to is to is to love children and welcome him, them in his name Okay, that's it for today. Thank you again for joining us. As always, I look forward to tomorrow. And until then, take care and bye-bye.